Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Theatrical Mustang Podcast. I'm your host, Katie Woodzik. This is episode 113 with Jack Hanley, who, as far as I'm concerned, should be the dictionary definition of a Renaissance man. We talk about several of Jack's projects, including the documentary Evil Cheesy Rides Again, his new pop culture site called The Superlatives Pop Culture Curated, and also his upcoming podcast called Best Worst Strangest. Lots of amazing recommendations on literature and film in this episode. I also want to give a shout out to Jack's newest endeavor, which is with James Gold of the Dairy Arts Center called Auteur Creative Design. We'll have a link to that and all of Jack's projects in the episode description. Hey, guess what? This episode is sponsored by the Non-Binary Monologues Project. I don't know if y'all have been keeping up, but I've started this thing, online database of monologues for non-binary actors, as featured on HowlRound and PBS Newsweekend. What? So there's a link in the episode description to the sponsorship page for the Non-Binary Monologues Project. We're starting a new model for funding the Non-Binary Monologues Project, which is you choose a monologue, you donate 50 bucks, half of that goes to the project itself for soft costs of admin, website maintenance, curation, editing, and the other $25 goes straight to the playwright. So if you or someone you know wants to sponsor a monologue on the Non-Binary Monologues Project, hey, that's a great idea. What a cool Christmas present for someone, huh? Huh? You can never start thinking about the holidays too early. All right, folks, enjoy episode 113 with Jack Hanley. I am thrilled to welcome, you know what I, when I think of Renaissance man, like I feel like your picture should be in the dictionary. Jack Hanley is our guest on the podcast today. Welcome, Jack. Thank you so much for having me. This is an enormous thrill to be on the show. I am uh, an utter fan, and I'm very excited to be here. Yay! So a little bird told me that you are about to launch a podcast of your own. Tell me all about it. Where did the idea come from, and where can, where and when can folks expect to uh, download these episodes? Absolutely. Well, um, and before we begin, if I may, I would love to just uh, shout out a congratulations <laughs> to you. Um, on your um, non-binary monologue project, which oh has gosh. been getting such acclaim. Um, Thank you so much. I, sincere congratulations and about time. And couldn't be happier. <laughs> and uh, clearly, I think I should probably just be interviewing you because you will be the more compelling uh, topic here. But if you want to go yeah. mundane, yeah. I'll continue. Just, we'll, just, we'll just do mundane for tonight. <laughs> That'll work. We'll just step it down a bit. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a podcast uh, project. That was initially um, done by, back with my work with uh, CU and the uh, Colorado Folklore Project. So we Ooh. had um, kind of um, talked on and off. And the general idea, the premise, as it were, is that um, we, everyone in life has such amazing stories that sometimes can be boiled down to one day that defines you. And it serves as a catalyst that changes the entire course of your life. So um, the idea here is it's called Best, Worst, Strangest. And um, the idea is we have you sit down and tell us about your best day, your worst day, and your strangest day. 
and um, just um, how it affects you. And then we have guest photographers that show up and um, take portrait photos during each of the segments, and uh, we put it out there for people. That's amazing. So is there, what's the intended drop date for your first episode? Uh, We are actually going to, we are right now in in compiling some of our stories. As you can imagine, there are amazingly compelling people out there that we'd love to talk to. Um, Hint, hint to any of your listeners as well. (laughs) And um, yeah, so probably uh, we're going to start doing our first recordings next month. So our hope is that by the first of the new year, we will have some out there. Be a fun new, I love the diversity of content on podcasts because I, I have pretty bad insomnia sometimes, and so sometimes I'll go to, uh, there's a podcast called Sleep With Me, and it's dedicated, this guy, Scooter, he just does boring stories, like hour and a half long boring stories made to put you to sleep, um, and then I also listen to, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Cameron Esposito and Rhea Butcher's Put Your Hands Together, Yes, which is amazing, and then sometimes they'll have guest hosts who also have podcasts, and... The one I've been listening to recently is Yaboo's Ya News, where these two comedians just get really, really drunk and talk about the news. <clears throat> so podcasting, I think, is just I don't know. I think it's a way that we that a way that we've used digital and new media for, for good instead of evil in mm. terms of like our attention spans. And I just it's one of my favorite modes of Consuming entertainment and communicating with people, I think. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly. I'm a junkie. I'm a podcast junkie. What I'm, are some of your favorites? Oh, my goodness. One that I... Uh, Roman Mars and 99% Invisible is uh, absolutely my favorite podcast. Uh, that one. And, um, oh, my goodness. So many different ones right now. Uh, I'm just drawing a blank at some of them. Um, Project Minimalism is one that I love. I listen to this podcast. <laughs> one of my absolute favorites. Good well. answer. Uh, pretty much I go to bed every night indulging <laughs> in a podcast. To a podcast. That puts me on, yeah. I take it because with, the, with the reading in bed, like your neck has to be at a certain level and the light, <laughs> and, and if you're sleeping with someone, and then it's like podcasts. See, yeah. Uh, secret is to find someone that you sleep with that can tolerate uh, such a thing. Ah, uh, words of wisdom. Uh, so moving from podcasts to one of your many other pursuits, tell me about this, uh, this film that you've been working on? Uh, <laughs> it's been a long time in the making. So <laughs> back when I was uh, bartending uh, to uh, put myself through grad school here at CU Boulder, I was working over on Pearl Street. And one day I looked out of uh, our giant bay window and noticed this um, specter of a man, if you will, who was kind of limping with a long beard and just kind of shuffling along down on Pearl Street. But what struck me um, was not only how nondescript he was personally, but then everyone began shouting at him and whistling and cars honking. And I, I just, it became impressive upon me. I had to find out who this person was. And um, one of my regulars told me, oh, that? You don't know? That's a Boulder legend. That's evil cheesy. And thus began my uh, my descent into the madness of um, our film that um, I'm making with uh, director Chris Lysing and one of my creative collaborators and brothers and longtime friend. Um, and we basically decided we just had to know the story of, of Evil Cheesy, as it were, who was like Boulder's oldest uh, living legend at that time. He was a stunt motorcycle jumper Shut all up. throughout the 1970s, kind of like in the vein of Evil Knievel right at the simultaneous right. time. In fact, he to get his blessing, Evil Cheesy at one point 
drove, um, inebriated to Evil Knievel's house, broke into his house, and um, <laughs> tried to get his blessing that, you know, that he would operate as evil, cheesy, and bolder. But um, just began doing these illegal street jumps on the newly minted Pearl Street, which had just been created in, uh, by mid-70s as a pedestrian mall. Before that, it wasn't. So, yes, he used to do all these illegal street jumps. Uh, the police were always chasing him in a very smoky and the Bandit-esque escapades um, and um, finally uh, his jump started drawing into the thousands and it began to make national news when he would do jumps and right at the height of his career um, he walked away disappeared um, left and um, basically kind of just fell into obscurity and um, uh, the documentary begins where we kind of discovered him um, later in the stage of his life and he had been building a motorcycle in secret in his shed with the intention to jump again to stage one last ride oh my gosh so we were like we have to be there to document this this right. is going to be the, the thrust right. of our film we started following him all through that time and then um as life happens uh our whole course of our documentary changed when it suddenly was discovered that he had early onset alzheimer's and oh, yeah. um basically soon began was institutionalized and then suddenly, our entire film began focusing on, first, the realization that he would never be able to get on a motorcycle again, but then documenting his uh, final days um, with him in the nursing home as he faded away. So it began to be a shift for basically how we are remembered, right? And when we're gone or voiceless, when we have no agency any longer, he lost the ability to speak. Um, how does one tell one story. How, how are you defined? You are somewhat at the mercy of having other people define your story, especially right. when you were a public figure. So that was the, the, the hard, beautiful, sad, and poetic um, ending to our tale. We followed him through, through the end of his life, and it made it rather difficult because we have a voiceless protagonist. You know, the star of our documentary can't speak at all. So we had to be very creative in how we tried to tell his story, which also kind of mirrored, it's not just about the man and his own mythos, but also about Boulder and America in the 1970s and what he represented here in town. So yeah, we're very proud of that. And we, uh, we did a screening. We had our initial screening at Chautauqua uh, a few months ago. And um, we're very pleased with how it went. And so we are just in the process now of uh, post-production, doing some chopping. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> right? You know, kill, killing your child uh, and yeah. chopping it up a bit and kind of getting it ready for some festivals. Congratulations. That, I mean, it doesn't get better than a story like that. Um, wow. Like, completely okay. unique. Do you have... Is, is there footage of him from yes, the 70s? Yes, So we have some of this oh. amazing um, archival footage. Uh, we put out a call uh, initially to the Boulder community and said, does anyone out there have a story? And by the right. way, everyone in Boulder has a story about Evil Cheesy. Evil Cheesy. Um, for good or for worse. <laughs> but um, yeah, so many people were gracious and really um, allowed us into their homes and showed us photo albums. Old 16 millimeter, 8 millimeter footage that we were wow. able to capture and, and hold on to. It was marvelous. I can't wait. I can't wait to see this. And I, I mean, I'm just thinking about like, how do you, it seems like something that's very, um, theatrical, a very theatrical story. And so like, how do, how do we turn this into like a Broadway musical or something? <laughs> oh my goodness. Eve. Can you imagine? If they do Spider-Man on Broadway, they can do evil cheesy on Broadway. And they should. Uh, they I should. Could... <laughs> and, uh, it, it's Terry, Terry Cheeseboro uh, was his actual name and he just passed away this last year. 
which also then complicated kind of how we ended this project. Right. But um, I can tell you that um, wherever evil cheesy is right now, <laughs> the idea of a musical would have appealed to it. Good, good. I'm glad. Um, so folks should just sort of, is there a website for that? or um, you know, Yeah, sort of... and we will we'll be posting much more about it. Um, I could encourage everyone. Um, Colorado Public Radio just did a wonderful little piece about it. Um, wow. And the least, the least important of which is talking with Chris and I. More importantly, their website on Colorado Public Radio um, has wonderful photo archives and um, great coverage. It kind of gives you the timeline of his life. So I would urge people to... To seek that out, just Google "evil cheesy rides" again, and there's plenty oh of info. Oh my gosh, it's amazing! So I just like want to stop the podcast right here and go watch it. But we'll <laughs> we'll, uh, we'll forge on. Uh, speaking of uh, the voice, the voice of a documentary, you have such an amazing voice. Where does this come from? Do you have any formal training in acting or anything, or just you born with it? Oh my goodness! I really wanted to be an actor at one point. Oh, did I was, you? Yes, I was uh, very passionate about that. Uh, I played Hamlet in a production <laughs> in my high school, and then uh, graduated on to. And this is embarrassing. A only for how terrible I am at it. Um, <laughs> uh, I took over as uh, King Arthur in a musical production of Camelot. Yes, I still remember all the all the words to the to the songs. Allah was made a distant <laughs> moon ago. Here, that I just sorry to interrupt you, but my dad, who's not a musical theater person at all, Thomas Woodzik, PhD, turned seventy five last week. Uh, could wore his record of Camelot out in college at Beloit College, just however stumbled upon it and like could not stop playing it. Just the one musical though. See, having never met him, I love him already. And I understand I understand that completely. <laughs> and what made it worse is that I was also just loved the musical. And uh there there's something like to quote Keats, there's a terrible beauty that's born when someone is uh, passionate about singing yet really can't do it well. So <laughs> that gives you any indication. But no, so I've, I've always just had a, a real love of um, of acting and I did some monologue work, but no, no formal training. Um, just yeah. came out with like a super resonant voice. <laughs> I guess so. I guess for those that screw you, man. No, <laughs> just kidding. Just kidding. I can't. I can't. Um, another project I wanted to talk to you about, or have you talk about, is the superlatives. Yes. Uh, what? This is just um, just a fun little side passion project that we have because, um, and and you know me, we're friends. One of the subsidiary um, gifts or terrors, as it were, that comes along with knowing me is being subjected to uns unsolicited rants about pop culture. I know you and I have exchanged many yes. um, over over drinks. It's and true. Um, yeah, so I just kind of decided, you know, I really would love to just invite friends and, you know, colleagues. And, and I, I like to surround myself with creative people. Um, as, as I know you do too, and I'm just consistently uh, elevated by my passion for hearing the thoughts of people that I, I love and, and that, are, that are creatives. And so I thought, what a better thing to do than to just um, gather people and just write about pop culture a bit more. Write about film. Uh, film is my passion, as you know, but we cover things with literature and pop music and yeah, it's just a fun little project. We are just in the first stages of beginning to launch that as well. So we have a website and we'll, yeah, we'd hope people read it and contribute. Cool. 
Yay! The superlatives. There's a tagline, right? It is. Pop culture curated. I dig it. I dig it. I always like like the drama professors that you would have, or I would have, and be like, I dig that. Like, you think, you know, like a, <laughs> right, a, a right. hep cat. I dig it. I dig it. Um, let's get into your origin story. Ooh. I think it's time for that now. Uh, so as, as my listeners know, I like to, what, I mean, what is your trajectory? Where do you come from? How do you get to Colorado? How do you fall in love with film and literature and pop culture? Oh my goodness. Um, so I was, uh, born, uh, in right outside of Pittsburgh. I'm from Pennsylvania originally and, um, kind of spent my early salad years, uh, <laughs> all throughout <laughs> Western Pennsylvania, um, and, which I love. I, I miss Every, you know, and the worst part is every year during the fall, I really get nostalgic for Western Pennsylvania and mm. uh, just the weather, the leaves. Um, I love Colorado. I'm not putting it down, but um, I don't like that we get about one week of fall here and then it suddenly turns into winter. Right? So um, I miss that from the East Coast. But no, so I spent all my time growing up there in this pastoral setting. We lived on a, uh, uh, we lived with my grandparents uh, for a time. We were staying with them in a really small town in Pennsylvania, and uh, right bordering the Juniata River, which is a, a branch of the Susquehanna River. So I had this Tom Sawyer-esque background, uh, upbringing, <laughs> right, um, in this little town. And then uh, later on, uh, right was I was uh, about 12 years old, my father relocated from work and took us down, much against my will, to Ocala, Florida, Central Florida, Ooh. where, yeah, is affectionately known as God's waiting room, if that tells you anything about the town. It's, uh, <laughs> sorry, fire ants and, and um, God's waiting and room. nursing homes. It was, yes. I'm getting, like, so many ideas for scripts <laughs> just by talking to you. Anyway, continue, But so, yeah, so I spent my whole time there going, into, uh, going through high school there in deep in the South and in the Bible Belt, uh, so that was... Um, quite an experience, but all of the time knowing that I wanted to head out eventually over there. I mean, and, and it's no offense to Florida. I'm sure if you lived on the beach or in like downtown Miami, right. that would be amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just happened to be smack dab in the center of Florida and um, not much to do there. It was a cultural wasteland. So any sort of cultural um, indoctrination, uh, I would have to uh, lay the blame wholeheartedly on my mother who... Um, introduced me to uh, amazing music and um, and literature at a young age and also just running into a great number of uh, early professors and teachers that really helped cultivate my, my love of literature. That was initially my first passion. With film, I just always knew that I loved it um, and it was demonstrated by the fact that as a young boy when I would watch a film, now separated from my beloved grandfather, still back in Pennsylvania, apparently I would get on the phone and call long distance and explain every detail of the film. To, I'm like, I'm talking full minutiae. I explained <laughs> the entire film. We and open on a desert <laughs> exactly, landscape. Exactly, exactly. Camera pans. And <laughs> bless his heart, that, um, that beloved man listened to every word I said. So it kind of really just gave me a validation for talking about film. And, um, and I, I'm with the Crested Butte Film Festival now, um, and I'm on their uh, programming committee, and I'm their host. And we recently had a retrospective about um, a friend of mine who passed, Roger Ebert, who was instrumental in also discovering that. Because I remember being a little boy watching the Siskel and Ebert show, right? You'd nice. see it on public television. It would come on some random Saturday morning. And just the fact of, you know, it wasn't terribly sophisticated, but the idea of having 
film critics who kind of moved it from the milieu of just the intellectual, right? And decided, no, we are going to democratize the idea about talking about film and bring it to the public and let, you know, and just see our discussions, our foibles. I mean, just watching those two go at it like an old married couple was just fantastic to me too. And no, I just grew up loving that and kind of said, you know what, if I could ever do this, if I could uh, write and talk about film, I, I think I found my tribe. So that's kind of where I got started with that. Fantastic. What? So where in your narrative uh, do we make the jump from Florida to Colorado? Ah, so I went to the University of Florida and got my um, uh, my undergraduate degree in the English department there. And um, as I mentioned before, I was left with a sincere desire to get out somewhere <laughs> and go somewhere that I thought would be just better um, culturally. So... I took a year off, and I had a friend of mine whose mother worked for a company that sets um, young young um, students who have no idea what they're in for to go to Alaska and work on the, oh, yeah. uh, the crab boats uh-huh. and the salmon plants as a way to help you know raise money for a summer. They called it a working vacation. Um, no one on air can see my sarcastic air quotes <laughs> with that one. But um, yeah, so I kind of decided went with a, a close friend of mine. And uh, we took a Greyhound bus from Florida, Central Florida, all the way to Seattle. Shut up. Jumped on a tiny little uh, uh, puddle hopper plane and spent a, a good six months in Bethel, Alaska. And that was really a fundamental changing point for me. I mean, first of all, at that time, there were no uh, television programs, you know, on the History Channel or Discovery Channel that just told you how much of an insane venture it is to go out on these crap. But we had no idea. Uh, Just how dangerous and insane it was. Um, But uh, it was just an experience that radically changed my life. To be there um, in the outskirts of the American, you know, frontier and the border. We were there amongst uh, the indigenous people there in a community uh, that are known as the Yupik. Wow. um, First Americans um, who I grew to love. They, that will be the subject of my next documentary when I get the funding is to go back to Bethel return and kind of shine a light on uh, the injustices of um, of these American citizens that really are overlooked what we have done to these people systematically over time and who really never get their story told at all uh, it's been very forgotten but just like being there in that just like radically changed it and um, I was kind of sitting around one day and decided you know uh, like Kerouac I think West West will do it for me and um, kind of uh, narrowed it down to two places. Uh, I know you're from, um, you hung around Seattle and the West Coast okay, over there. So yeah. close, close by, I was thinking, I narrowed it down to either Eugene, Oregon <laughs> or Boulder, Colorado. Because I knew I wanted somewhere where I could, um, you know, explore my love of nature, but had to have a, you know, university town to right. go to my postgraduate right. studies. And um, so I just happened to land here first and just fell in love with the place instantly. With Boulder. As what, what is your graduate degree in? Um, in English. English literature. And my specialty is in um, the American Romanticism. Wow. That's so, so cool. That's my little little area of, of study. Yeah. Sorry. I keep saying shut up. Um, <laughs> what I mean, keep talking. Uh, that is incredible. Uh, so you land, so you do grad school see you are you are you still in I'm still in the program over there yes because I again because of I vacillate wildly with things like that (laughs) Uh, (laughs) 
I will be a 90-year-old professor, I think, when I finally get tenure. Hey, you um, and me both. <laughs> so I chagrin. But no, I, I, right in the middle of it all, I just, um, I traveled Europe. I took time off and decided just to go and do that, you know, the what one considers the romantic grand tour, you know, right. the, the Byron and Shelley grand tour of, of Europe. And I spent some time living abroad, which also, as it always does, radically changed my worldview and perspective and suddenly came back and walked into the university and changed my major to history and decided to uh, specialize in, um, in Central and Eastern Europe. So I spun that much to the dismay of the English department, um, did all of that for the longest time and um, yeah, just then had a falling out with my mentor and uh, long story short, basically came back to the English department and was like, you know, your prodigal son has returned. If you'll allow him to continue studying, he'd be most grateful. So I'm back with the English department now. That, that is a tale in and of itself. <laughs> yeah, an expensive tale. <laughs> oh, don't remind me. Uh, uh, You're saying to the person who's putting together a PhD application. Some of those programs are fully funded. Some. Some, some of them. Uh, Indeed, but I know you, and you will make far wiser decisions than I am. Well, we can uh, we can hope. <laughs> <laughs> we can hope. Or you'll be terribly impetuous and just. I would love to be terribly impetuous. I just the Midwest, the Midwestern human within <laughs> is very much like you have to do things. You have to be practical. It can't oh. be can't be too risky. Um, where were you five years ago? Where was I five years ago? Oh, okay. Don't all worry. right, all right, you could have set me all on the path. right. <sighs> Refocusing in. Uh, not about me. Not my, you're not interviewing me, Jack. Nice try. Um, sorry. <laughs> uh, when you were talking about the idea for your next documentary, I just wanted to know, I mean, I know what that inner bell is in terms of if there's a project that I want to direct or I'm like, oh, this is the next thing. This is the thing I want to spend time on. What would you say your philosophy or your process is when you come across a story that you know that you have to tell? Oh, that's a wonderful question. It's in one way, it was a little disheartening because uh, Chris Lysing, my, my partner as well, we had talked about this originally as our kind of first idea. And then we kind of went into evil cheesy. And then once we got into that, how that story developed it became our life for a good, you know, a couple of years just because of the way the story developed completely on its own. And we were just kind of passive participants trying to document this. So it kind of put us in this weird artistic purgatory for a while of just knowing we wanted to revisit that project. So, yeah, I, I always kept it at heart and uh, I'm really looking forward to just establishing it. I, I don't know if I answered your question correctly, but it's I'm able to continue work on other projects, but it's a little festering, yeah, but right? I, I guess that, maybe I'm going to rephrase the question. Like, what, what's that moment like when you come across a story that you know you mm, have to tell? Mm, oh. What makes it stick for you? I see. Well, it's exhilarating um, at that moment when it happens, as every um, uh, creative can tell you. Um, and it's because I'm moved. And I, and I think this reflects in what I'm doing with my podcast. And kind of, you know, when I step back from myself, I see what I am moved most greatly by in life are people. And the stories people tell and the individual triumphs and traumas and uh, passions and successes of everyone that, you know, shares this stage with us for a while. And that uh, just moves me 
beyond words. And so, yeah, when I find those small stories and individuals, I cling on to them. You just know. Yeah, you know. absolutely. Where will this podcast go next? <laughs> Let's see. I guess, I guess I sort of want to dig into uh, like what literature first excited you the most ooh, since ooh. this has been a long journey for you studying literature yes, and uh-huh. then maybe we'll segue that into how that relates to love film. Ooh, that's an okay. So um, that is actually a funny story in itself. So uh, I kind of developed a passion. I, mean, I had a passion for reading at a young age. I can still recall fondly, again, my, my dear mother having the patience. She uh, hauled uh, myself and my sister to the library with wagons so we could check out. I remember in this little town of Pennsylvania, the limit on checking out books for kids was 20 books. So <laughs> my sister and I religiously took out 20 books. There's your wagon. There's your wagon. Did Let's our go. wagon all the way back to the house and just pour and try to devour as many as we could. And um, for the little library that we had there. But I really have to say, um, for me, it, so it was a lot of autodidactic exploration with, with just great literature, again, engaging in stories and, and in the great fiction. But a turning point, so when I moved to Florida for a while, I mean, and I grew up in a very uh, uh, good old Irish Catholic background, <laughs> uh, brought into it. And um, so whenever we moved to, we moved to Florida, my, my parents were trying to find a Catholic school they could put me into, as is the tradition of every, mm-hmm. you know, Irish Catholic um, loyalist. And uh, there was none where we went to. Again, this is Central Florida Bible Belt. So it's very Southern Baptist, uh, very, you know, its own unique um, culture there. So the only, so my father in his limited wisdom decided, well, any, any school will work for him as long as it's religious, I guess. So I was put into a, um, a little, a little uh, middle and high school that was a Southern Baptist. Oh, no. Christian oh, school. Oh, no. And what, what I will all, never forget was that I was so anxious to start the English uh, program there. And the amount of books that were censored by the school that they wouldn't allow us to have access to was, in retrospect, the worst thing they could have done to someone like me. Because I then became impassioned to try to read as much mm-hmm. as I could of what they deemed scandalous. Uh, to give you, and, and not, I, you know, sure they tried their best, but I remember my ninth grade English teacher actually was teaching Hamlet out of uh, the, oh, what are the, the little books, the little yellow? Oh, Cliff Notes. Out of Cliff Notes. They, they were oh, teaching gosh. it out of Cliff Notes, which tells you their love. And again, in some of these Christian schools, it's, it's everyone is doing multiple things. If someone is like a math teacher and PE teacher and, right. you know, works in the cafeteria, no one's really qualified to be teaching a lot of these classes, much to the disservice of, of its, in, you know, inquisitive student body. But I was just obsessed with that. I remember they were teaching it out of out of the cliff notes, and they had blackened out the section where it discussed um, some of the uh, possible Freudian aspects of Hamlet, uh, which I thought was such a big kick out of that, and uh, crossing it out. But I think what was instrumental for me at that time was beginning to, to study it and read it on my own, I began to quickly see how many hidden layers of wit and um, the use of language mm-hmm. that Shakespeare employed that was missed by these teachers. 
So I, the, the great part is they would censor what they thought were the obvious, you know, great <laughs> sins against, against Christianity in, in these works. But I was uh, reading, you know, with the, my trusty Oxford English Dictionary at home, pouring through pages, quickly discovering just how, how hilariously filthy Shakespeare was being in certain passages that they never got. You're and just like, I found some. I found some. I could be counted on to find some. And no, it just, it really um, just spurred my absolute love of, of the use of language then and, um, and the nuance of, of what the potentiality of literature could hold. And that's what really kind of got me on my path. Did you a, did you make reading lists for yourself? I did. I'm, I I'm, made reading lists stop for myself. It. I am a yeah. compulsive lister, and I do this all the time. And I, yes, it's shameful. I every year I list out all the books I'm going to read. I never, <laughs> I, I I am terrible about living up to my right. my noble <laughs> original standards. But yes, no, I'm compulsive in that. Yes, I have. This list that I'm... It's 20 years old. Stop it, <clears throat> It's 20 years old. The paper is, like, brittle. Uh, but what I did was I, I got these two these two books, and one of them was, like, the best classic literature something. And then the other was, like, 100 banned books. Like, the most banned books. <laughs> right, and so, right. like, as a 12-year-old, I'm like, so I'm just going to pick and choose from these two. And so it's a list of, like, 120 books. I think I maybe made it halfway through... <laughs> But every once in a while, I'll take a look at it. I'll be like, oh, yeah, yeah, 12-year-old me said that we were going to read all this. <laughs> well, our 12, 12-year-old Jack would have been a marvelous <laughs> companion and um, absolutely been your best friend ever. Oh I did God. exactly the same. And I, at that time, I kind of went to the first resource that I thought of. And I kind of, I also, likewise, hand-copied in a spiral notebook all of um, Harold Bloom's The Western Canon, which, you know, again, that's kind of like your first introduction right. into... Uh, the, the supposed curation of, of literature, although we now uh, can look back and see just how, you know, dead white male that is. Right. Um, but uh, that was my, my first attempt. And so I had basically, once I compiled everything, realized that I had to go out and collect like, you know, I think it was like 560 works. And I, I'm really falling behind. And so, yeah, that was my, I, I may have that notebook somewhere. You wrote by hand. But I wrote them all down I by have hand. These, I have these books from, I mean, I think it was starting age 10 or 12. Uh, and I've, I, I don't do this anymore. I kind of wish I did, but I would, uh, I would write down, handwrite the passages I really loved. And so I have like two or three of these notebooks where I've like written down what I loved from the great Gatsby or from Jane Eyre. Uh, ugh, I miss That's that. beautiful. Do you like miss, sometimes you miss like your younger self and like you're like, you are so ambitious and well read. Yes, yes. My younger <laughs> self is so much cooler than what I developed it to. I really, <laughs> I feel like I'm letting him down. Damn all the time. it. I don't, I don't revisit often because I think he'd be ashamed. Uh, but because <laughs> he was so ambitious about what he wanted to do. <laughs> a moment of silence for younger Jack. That's exactly for young Jack. <laughs> um, ha- All right, so talk talk to me about the intersection of film and literature. Are there? Do you have like your your list of the sort of your favorite uh, adaptations of some of those works that you were reading as a kid? Like where where do those two connect for you? That, that's that's a brilliant question, it, and I don't know that necessarily. I mean, I think the easy answer is to try to look for ways in which they do. But I always kind of recognized film as its own, you know, separate genre for me, its own thing. Although I love great adaptations, uh, especially Shakespeare. I think one of my early ones was the, were the Shakespearean 
um, adaptations that went through, right? And um, sure. cut my teeth the, on the all Branagh's the Branagh. The Branagh, of okay. course, we all, right. all go Branagh. Right. That's right. That's kind of Kenneth Branagh. Kenneth. But even just, you know, I remember in, in English classes even watching Mel Gibson try to stumble his way through iambic pentameter. Oh, my God. <laughs> but, um, Why? But, Who greenlit that, you <laughs> moron? The 50-year-old uh, uh, Mel Gibson, uh, a, a young spry student from Wittenberg. Uh-huh. Um, but, yeah, so. Uh, no, but film just started, like I said, at an early age. Really was an, ex- an escape for me. I really... My, one of my first film blogs um, was entitled Alone in the Dark, and it, it truly meant something for me. I used to just love going to the theater by myself. And um, that I, I think maybe coming from, from the idea of, um, of literature and words to suddenly just switching, turning it off, and just watching this beautifully visual aesthetic um, really made its mark on me. So I just have an absolute passion for film, and it just, yeah, it kind of developed on its own. I, I never really looked necessarily for the intersections but of course they're there right it's um, in any great narrative endeavor they're all there but i i appreciate it for its own for its own thing yeah yeah where was, oh, i had like this brilliant segue damn it uh yeah 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 no i lost it um maybe i'll find it again we shall see what else do i want to talk about the night is young i was thinking about uh when you were saying that, I was thinking about high fidelity a little bit, mm. which is one of my forever and always favorite top five films. Um, and, and <laughs> which would make her be proud. Intended. Yes. Um, <laughs> did you, uh, when you were, uh, no, that was it's not a question, but just sort of getting into the, the way that John Cusack created that is mm-hmm. one of my favorite things, that how he transposed it from England to Chicago, because he knew Chicago. That's right. That's right. I believe it's one, was it, I think maybe he did some writing credits on Gross Point Blank, but it was he really did. one of the ones that he built from the ground up. Um, I don't know, I feel like you very much belong in that world of high fidelity somehow. Uh, and and so what if if you were curating for me uh, certainly uh, top five list so there's two of them top five films I need to watch mm. top five books I need to read oh my goodness off the top of your head go wow throwing me on the spot all right so let me start with films because okay. I think um, I, I'm better equipped right now because I was I'm always terrible about selecting. Uh, literature because <laughs> I'm so fickle and uh, my loves change um, <laughs> often, fair. right? You're allowed. Right? You're allowed. Like the famous um, statement in Love in the Time of um, Cholera, the heart is, is like a bordello, right? And you can <laughs> <laughs> visit many rooms, right? And, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of that way with literature and I change over time. But with film. So let me start off with some of the ones that um, I'll curate a list for you that I think... Um, kind of span generationally and okay. that I'm just going to tell you the ones that have had a major impact on me Cool. Um, that I really um, think you'd enjoy. So I will start with the first film that ever, the moment it ended, rendered me speechless where I just couldn't talk for okay. like a good 10 minutes. And that was um, at the conclusion of Miwosh Foreman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest um, starring Jack Nicholson. Now, let me preface this by saying my list will definitely be skewed toward what I consider the greatest period in American filmmaking, which is the American New Wave. Um, for me, personally, um, as far as American filmmaking goes, it all started when Bonnie and Clyde got mowed down in a hail of bullets in 1968, and our glorious 
American cinematic movement ended when um, E.T. came to town, right? And we mm. moved to the age of the blockbuster. Right. As much as I have a nostalgic love for, for E.T., it kind of just changed. In that time frame, America was making films like um, they had never done before. Um, you had the collapse of the studio system, which mm. gave, for the first time, complete artistic freedom to all of these directors. It was the first time American directors weren't just studio employees, but rather um, cinephiles and film school students, right? It was the birth of the film school generation taking over directorial duties. You had um, advances in the industry, like Panaflex cameras that were introduced that allowed you to leave the studio and go and shoot in naturalistic settings, in natural light. So yeah, all the films of that period are really special to me. Um, and uh, One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest is an absolute fine example. Um, so that's number one, and um, let me, I'll have to be brief so that we have time to fit this into the podcast for you. Um, a gem that I would encourage you to go see that's a favorite of mine, and I, I love socio-realism. I, where other people often go to, you know, uh, the escapism of fantasy. Sure. I, I love uh, the films and television shows that deal with um, deconstructing the realities that we live in, right? Very famous for me. So one of those, for, like in television, for instance, I am a huge fan of The Wire. We talked about this all the time. Uh, David Simon in general. I urge all your listeners to go out, find a way to steal an HBO password, and go watch Show Me a Hero with Oscar Isaacs immediately. You will thank me for this later. I can do that tonight. You should. And okay. it's, it's just brilliant. I mean, it's it's eight hours of watching I'm making a note. Show, Oscar, show Me a Hero. Show Me a Hero. Okay. It's eight hours of Oscar Isaac. Uh, basically in town hall meetings. It depicts the true uh, story of what was then uh, the youngest mayor in American history who took on um, and ultimately landed on the right side of history in taking on um, um, integrated housing, which at that time, you know, the, the Supreme Court had found that Yonkers was using discriminatory housing policies and were keeping people segregated into, into ghettos. And this is still in the late 80s. And basically this one mayor paid the ultimate price, personally and career-wise, to stand on the right side of history for integration. So that's kind of where I operate from as one of my personal loves from a genre perspective. So the film I'll recommend is called The Decalogue. And this is a 10-hour film. This is a, the Polish filmmaker, um, Keith <laughs> hey, Larsky. I'm Polish. I'll watch yes. it. Yes. Well, then you're, you're in. And no one makes film like the Poles. They're amazing. And it's, um, it's Keith Larsky had um, sat down, and basically it's set in the 1980s, in a high-rise Warsaw apartment building under communism, and it depicts uh, 10 one-hour segments, each one loosely correlated to one of the Ten Commandments, and how people intersect and their lives all contrast. Okay. It is a masterpiece, and you rarely can see it. Criterion just put out the new uh, version out, so... You can watch it. I once ran a film program at CU where we screened all ten in one day, Ooh. along with goulash. <laughs> and, uh, along and with watched goulash. it. Yes, watched it. it, it was that's a, the pull quote from the podcast. Exactly. Along it was, with it goulash. must accompany goulash. Uh, so that's one of my all-time favorites. I urge people to check that out to just know the human condition. Um, uh, one that I just absolutely adore, and I will watch anytime. My guilty pleasure film I'll watch anytime is um, Sidney LeMay's Twelve Angry Men. Um, okay. It is a masterwork of just, um, again, the socio-realism of having human beings together operating in a room um, deciding this fate. And it all takes place in one locale. And the camera just moves aside as uh, these 12 jurors basically argue with the life of a young boy's, you know, his life is at stake in their verdict. 
and um, led by the great Henry Fonda, but just a powerhouse collection of character actors that just, I will never fail to watch it. I mean, obviously there's been many other great adaptations now where it's been 12 Angry Women and then, you know, they've right, done right, right. Well, no, uh, the two things that come to mind is, oh my gosh, who's the younger Reitman? Oh, Jason. Jason. So he has, I don't know if it's still going on, but he at one point had a monthly thing going on where he would do staged readings of some of his favorite film scripts. And so he did 12 Angry Men, but he did it with Robin Wright Penn. He did it with Catherine O'Hara. Really? He did it. And so, and I think when they did The Big Lebowski, they had Jennifer Lawrence play the Julianne Moore character. Anyway. Uh, and I just, I love repackaging stuff like that. And then, of course, also I was smiling because of the Amy Schumer episode. <laughs> Which is always just so well done, right? It is so perfect. And the more you want, you know, yeah, the more you know the original... You see how brilliant Amy Schumer was in capturing that. Isn't Jeff, is Jeff Goldblum in that? Yes, yes. yes Jeff Goldblum's oh, just an Jeff immaculate cast in that. But, right. but yeah, I love that film. Such an example of just uh, a, an amazing script and just how that can propel. You know, you don't need special effects. You don't right. need explosions. It's just people in a room yep. and the humanity that emerges is breathtaking. I watch that all the time. I have a tradition. Every yeah. Easter, every Easter. single Easter... Um, while other people, you know, go to their various houses of worship, I go to my house of worship, which is my my um, DVD player, and put in every Easter. I watch um, Kuwasara's The Seven Samurai. <laughs> this was a uh, a film, and you know, and again with you, it, there's other Japanese directors that are are much uh, more nuanced and, and and better filmmakers. I'll even consider, you know, like Ozu and things like that. They're just their films are better, um, like Tokyo Story or things like that, but. I remember seeing The Seven Samurai when I was young, and it just struck me in a way that it was one of those first films that I thought encompassed all of the human condition. Mm. And how rare is it that you can have one film where you can laugh hysterically, that you will weep openly, that you will stop and have an existential pause just to consider your place, right, in humanity, or just be taken along like on a on a, a proto-Western, right? On an action film, but then shift back to the most intimate human of moments. Um, I was astonished that he was able to create all of this in one film. And um, every year to kind of just like ground me to that, I, a tradition, get up in the morning, make myself breakfast and coffee and watch The Seven Samurai. So I would encourage everyone, see that film. You will love it. Um, I think that's up to four at this moment, right? Am I there? I think you're there. Where am I at? Okay, so I'm at four, and then um, the final film. I'm going to give you a modern film. Okay. That I think is amazing, and that is um, Brian Glazer's um, Under Under the Skin, okay. which is just a masterwork. It stars Scarlett Johansson as an alien who returns to, who comes to Earth, and is part of a collection of this alien invasion that basically has to devour men in order to help um, control the, you know, with, the, with their planet. So what they do is they send down non-gendered aliens, but they must take on the appropriation of women, of earthly women, right. to then try to drive around the Scottish countryside and lure men to their impending doom. What? Yes. And, um, and, so, and there are whole segments where it's basically um, Scarlett Johansson plays this alien, and she's in a truck with cameras, and the director has her driving around Glasgow at like two in the morning and just picking up men. And they don't even know they're being filmed for this, for this movie. And it's her, them not even recognizing who she is and kind of, you know, the engagement. It's, it's never, it, there's never been a better, more modern film about that. 
idea of the construction of gender, what comes along with it, um, and especially from, uh, from the female perspective of what it means to take that on, right? And of, again, of playing both the duality of being an, uh, a, a carnivore in that sense, but then also the, the weaknesses within living within a patriarchal society yeah. of what then comes on when you appropriate that role. And subsequently, what happens? It's it's a masterpiece. It's under the skin. It is Kubrickian in scope. It is beautiful. That is a film that I tell people. A lot of critics loved it. Most of the public didn't see it. But when they when you have film schools ten years from now, that will be a film people will talk about. So I recommend that you see that. I think you'll love it. <laughs> that's awesome. Are you gonna Are you gonna give me my literature, my reading list now? Oh my goodness! All right. So jumping. Put you to work here. I know. I know. Um. So again, I'm just going to kind of go for some favorites for me. And I'll tell you what, what I'll do in this one is I'll give you authors because I am an Great. unabashed uh, subscriber it. to the auteur theory <laughs> in relation to literature, right? Like, what is the great joke? There are no bad novels. There's only bad authors. Sure. So I'll play along with that. I will tell you I am I'm impassioned by the works of um, Philip Roth. Um, is a guilty pleasure of mine that I enjoy. <laughs> I um, am absolutely... My early gothic days, I, you know, what kind of got me on to when I was in that Christian school was, weirdly enough, one of the few authors that they kind of left for, left, uh, you know, untouched and unmolested on the shelf was uh, the works of Edgar Allan Poe. Really? And, you know, and I think it's time to bring that back because we went through the stage where he was once kind of revered, then went through the inevitable backlash when they tried to purge some of the American romantics and, and transcendentalists. And um, I think it's now time for a revisiting again, of, of, of complex language being done, right? I know we went through the Hemingway-esque period where brevity is, is to be celebrated in literature, but I think there's also a moment uh, where we can learn to appreciate uh, complexity and the beauty of language for art and beauty's sake, which I feel that um, Poe's command of language was just extraordinary. Absolutely. Um, I am also a rabid fan of to switch genres of magical realism. Okay. So, All right. Yeah, that's a big one for me. So, um, of course, you know, uh, Marquez's uh, works are just absolutely brilliant. I urge you all to read them. Um, 100 Years of Solitude is just mm. one of my, my favorite works of all time. And I'm going to actually, as we're sitting here too, I'm going to throw two in because recently... I have been just um, completely enamored of the short form and just collections yes. of short stories, yes. which has kind of been my thing lately. So I'll tell you two that are just really brilliant for me. One here, and that is um, Lucia Berlin's A Manual for Cleaning Women. Uh, this is came out, This is not relatively new, but still great nonetheless. There is a real morality to, and I mean that in the best sense. There's a human morality um, and nuance to, to um, her writing. And um, Things We Lost in a Fire, which mm. is the other collection um, yeah. that, I would, that I would really push out right now. Is, is that by her as well? or No, no. That is over here by um, Enriquez. Right. So anyway, uh, those, those are ones that I would, again, I'm very fickle. I'll have a different list of five <laughs> next time we talk. Um, I remember being a boy and just obsessed with um, Kennedy's Ironweed for like a year. And that's all I would talk about. So I'm fickle. But next time we talk, I'll have as, another five. As we all are. <laughs> We're all fickle. I remember what I was going to say earlier. It was, have you read um, Annie Baker's script, The Flick? Because if you haven't, you need to. I have not, so either it is going won, on my syllabus. Yeah, it either won the Pulitzer or it was really close to winning the Pulitzer, but it happens... Uh, 
so the the stage, the set is a movie theater, and so all the scenes happen between films, right? And so it's the staff of the movie theater sweeping as a movie theater that's going to make the switch from projection to digital, digital, um, and I just think you would really love it, especially the character of Avery, who is just so in love with film. Oh, I, I think what? because what you were It'll saying be earlier, you really very much reminded me of some of the monologues that he has. In it, he talks about how he has this dream where uh, he has this dream where there's this whole library of VHS tapes, right, and all the best movies because he spent basically most of his life watching all of these amazing movies, and <clears throat> he's trying to like I guess he has to scan the right barcode to get into heaven. I'm paraphrasing here, but like the last one is honeymoon in Vegas. He's like, <laughs> is this what my life adds up to? Honeymoon in Vegas. Oh, I've talked to his it. therapist on the phone. Anyway, um, as we sort of wrap, wind down our time together, uh, two more questions for you. And one is since we, I like to call this, podcast interviews with artists and activists so what we've talked about the art thing i think we've pretty much exhausted it all but um but what i mean are there any causes about which you're really passionate oh absolutely and and i'm glad you mentioned that because again bringing that back um it's kind of that that introduction to social realism um that i think is is necessary and give me again one more moment to try to pitch uh, David Simon okay. and um, and The Wire. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with his works, but um, the audacity. So David Simon is um, started off as a crime reporter, wrote for the Baltimore Sun, um, later on became a scriptwriter, and then you know takes the helm and, and basically starts crafting dramas that are about the human condition, but with a Dickensian scope of characters mm. and arcs. And um, I will. I've argued before. Much, and I'm usually not in the mind, in the majority with this argument, but I've argued before that for me, in American dramas, right, recent American dramas, the triptych of understanding America. If you wanted to try to tell someone, here's how I would explain America and the American narrative and our mythos and our construction and our origin story, I would give them three dramas. I would give them um, Mad Men which I think these are the best. Uh, Mad Men, uh, The Sopranos um, for its writing, and then lastly, The Wire. And The Wire on one level is just very simply an examination of, it almost could be confused with a basic police procedural. It is the um, police department in Baltimore going into the high rises of the low income areas and taking on the drug trade. But what you soon discover is that it is so much more. It is basically David Simon deconstructing not only an American city in five seasons, but also America itself, capitalism itself, a searing indictment of capitalism. Um, and each subsequent season, he takes on a completely different um, uh, uh, like tone or genre of the Amer Baltimore experience, as it were. So the first one can focus on police, then a different season focuses on um, capitalism in the form of the docks. A third season can then focus on politicians and, and what role politics have. But my favorite moments in all of television history here is that in season four, and I don't know how the hell he got this passed by the HBO producers, but basically said, I'm gonna focus season four following four 
African American eighth grade children in this school in Baltimore, and we're going to follow their lives and what it truly means to to break down and persecute the ideas of white privilege, of the ideas of economic inequality, right? And and he was doing this before anyone else really that had a voice um, to, to do this. And of course, the, this series was beloved by critics and watched by no one. Um, but I, I have such respect for, for that artistic form taking that on. I mean, that kind of mirrors the activism that um, I got involved in with that. Um, I do a lot of work with the um, Democratic Socialists of America. I'm strong with them on, because I feel that, you know, um, the two things that are very passionate for me are um, the great American and, and capitalistic tragedy that is income inequality in America and um, the idea, the heartbreaking reality that um, you know, there are people who do not have the same chances as the rest of us here. And um, really trying to dismantle this false and frankly grotesque narrative that if you work hard enough and just you know long enough <sighs> that you will achieve everything that, that, that someone else can do, right? Um, that just feeds the capitalist uh, machine. So that I'm very passionate about. I'm also very passionate on healthcare. Um, my I, my beloved, my favorite person in the world is my daughter, who's about to turn 12, Mia. And um, when she was five, she was diagnosed with um, type one juvenile diabetes, and just immediately kind of thrust us into understanding that world of um, healthcare in America and the the brutal realities of a system that is geared toward economic gain at the expense of human beings. And um, that has been my most passionate advocacy at the moment with that. So th those two things I'm very passionate about. Thank you. I feel, I feel like unworthy of this interview right now. Like it was just so beautiful to hear you speak so well about those two issues. So thank you for sharing those. Um, now we get to the last question. Yes. Which is... If people are listening and they want to do the things that you do, what pieces of advice do you offer to other creatives who are passionate about mm. film and literature and the things about which you're passionate? I will tell you one bit of advice that has served me well, and I you know, kind of just discovered it by accident, and I would urge all your beautiful listeners to whatever their endeavor is, whatever they are passionate about, number one, if it doesn't rouse passion in you it's not worth your time and then once you've established what you're passionate about it, it sounds like a cliche but so many people don't do it you, you have to be unafraid to just pursue it um at the expense of, don't wait for other people's advice don't wait on being given permission to explore or to do things right to just uh, do it boldly go forth on your own and just just create and that sounds so trite, right? That sounds like such a cliche, but mm. how many people throughout all of human existence have allowed other people to dictate to them their own limits of creative uh, ambition, right? That, that basically tell them, well, you have to do this first, or oh no, you can't go and do that. Or oh no, my goodness, you have to go through this production company first, or one must raise fun. No, there has never been a greater moment um, with the advent of tech technology where we've had a total democratization of the creative form where anyone can get out there and just do something. So I, I honestly tell you, just be fearless.
Be fearless, be relentless, um, and be passionate about it. Hey, that's a great tagline to go out on, eh? Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. This has been amazing. Thank you so much. Thank you, and thank you again for having me on. It is no secret that you're one of my favorite people of all time, and I consider this an honor to just even be hanging out with you. Aw, shucks, Jack. (laughs) 